It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi williams and this is the Big Ten Big Expose Sports Business Podcast, The Sportacast. Nice. Big Ten Big Expose. Big story from Daniel Libet. And Daniel, I was getting... People calling me, texting me because you're out on Twitter teasing. You're throwing photos out there, foreshadowing uh, people like, what's the story all about? What is Libet talking about? So I'll let you sum it up because they were saying to me, oh, so what's the story about? I mean, obviously, now that we've read it, I know. But if people say to you, what is this colossal piece of 10-month reporting, reportage, as they like to say, what's it about? You tell them what. The story, like with the photo I put out on Twitter before it ran, is about the Big Ten's parking lot, the staff parking lot. Yeah, do and not enter it. Sort there. of true. This is sort of true, both as a metaphor and also with the actuality. One of the first things that Kevin Warren did when he became commissioner in the early part of 2020 was he had a high level, in his words, security consultant do an audit of both the Big Ten headquarters in Chicago and then their satellite office in New York and to find all different kinds of deficiencies. And one of the things that came out of this was that the parking lot in Chicago that the staff parks in uh, seemed not to be secure. And so he erected this 10-foot wrought iron gated fence with a mechanical security entrance as one of his big things. And this kind of hiked the eyebrows of some of his staff who he had inherited from his predecessor, Jim Delaney, who thought that this was a weird thing for a commissioner to be fixated on, a little paranoid. This was obviously before the Big Ten was thrust into the national political spotlight. Uh, But this, in some ways, defined the way that Kevin Warren saw his job versus how Jim Delaney saw his job. Kevin Warren saw the Big Ten as a business that was, in some ways, very successful, was bringing in seven, eight hundred million dollars a year of revenue, but in other ways wasn't paying attention to the fine points, especially that were going on in the office. And he wanted to start addressing what he saw to be potential landmines in his staff, in, in the actual physical buildings. He got into some of these weeds. And the story in in many respects is looking at the behind the scenes in the office that was transpiring while all of these public controversies were swirling about the Big Ten over the pause of football into the fall of 2020, the conversations with Kevin Warren and Donald Trump about returning to play, all these public things that were happening behind the scenes, Kevin Warren was trying to professionalize in his mind the Big Ten 
and it uh, has not gone so smoothly. Nothing says amateur sports like a 12-foot wrought iron uh, security consultant-inspired uh, security fence. Um, Daniel, I, I think the timing of your story, obviously intentional in some ways, comes at a really interesting moment, right? Where, where Kevin and the Big Ten are celebrating a lot of big recent success. That they, they added UCLA and USC. They'll be joining the Big Ten soon. A big coup in the, in the business and competitive world of college sports. There's a Big Ten media contract also coming at some point soon. Expectations are that will be over a billion dollars a year. That's right, a billion dollars a year. It'll be the biggest, most expensive uh, annual media contract in all of college sports, including what the NCAA gets paid most likely. Um, how do you kind of balance these two things, kind of the outward success that the Big Ten seems to be having right now and a lot of what you're learning about how messy it was over the past 18 or, or 24 months getting to this point? Yeah, well, you could have two different interpretations. One, you could see this as just a product of pure luck one way or the other, that Kevin Warren was perhaps the unluckiest college commissioner um, back three years ago when he took this job without a lot of college sports experience or allies in the conference and then was slammed you know, within 70 days by COVID and the, and the cancellations from COVID of, of the Big Ten basketball tournament in March Madness. So you could see he was incredibly unlucky there. And then you can see in much the same way, the other side of the coin is he's incredibly lucky. USC and UCLA came over the transom. He did not solicit them. He's very adamant in making sure that everyone knows that because there could be some legal implications if they were trying to interfere with the Pac-12. Um, that the, These schools came to the Big Ten because they wanted to be at, in the Big Ten. And if Jim Delaney was still in the seat, they still would have probably come to the Big Ten. Similarly, with this meteorites deal, Delaney loyalists want to remind anyone, including me, uh, countless times in my reporting, that this was all teed up by Jim Delaney. The fact that the Big Ten at this moment of time, in time, um, is able to uh, negotiate, as you say, a billion dollar plus, most likely uh, media deal, is because of the way the genius of Jim Delaney doing a short term structured deal in 2016 2017 that allowed the conference to jump right back into the fray after the SEC negotiated their deal a couple of years ago and reclaimed the high end of the market. So Delaney loyalists say this guy is just pure lucky and is the beneficiary of Jim Delaney's genius. Warren loyalists say, see, maybe people were wrong in, in bashing him a couple of years ago. He really knows what he's doing because look at all the fortune that's befallen the conference. Scott, that media thing reminds me of LeBron James that year when he was a free agent that instead of going the max amount, he took the, the two-year bridge knowing that new media deals were going to kick in and there was going to be more money, that it was smarter economically to do a short-term deal now to get the big long-term deal later. That's essentially what a lot of people feel like Jim Delaney saw. Yeah, but uh, absolutely. But we could also keep it in the college sports. It's what Larry Scott was trying to do over at the Pac-12, trying to say, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, these meteorites, they're only going up. Why don't we just let it all expire? We had some private equity companies interested in buying a piece of our media. We said no to that, but we do own everything. Boy, at a time of, of rising everything, we're going to own all of our media rights and we're going to cash in big time. Although before they could cash in, UCLA and UC, USC are headed out. <laughs> and those, of course, are big, big time draws. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, so that, that'll skew things. So, I mean, maybe that fine line between genius and, uh, you know, whatever the, the opposite is. 
Um, but the question for you, Daniel, is has the job changed for when it was a Jim Delaney? And if I'm looking for a commissioner now, as let's say the Big 12 was, you know, they hired friend of the program, Brett Yormark. Brett didn't come from college, but Brett sells, man. Brett is about selling. He's like, the Big 12 is open for business. If you know anything about Brett, you know, it's going to be slicing and dicing. Like you could have a, a beer partner, a light beer partner, uh, a, a no hops beer partner, a alcohol free beer partner. That's how Brett thinks about things. How can I slice and dice and sell, sell, sell? Has the job changed? Well, it absolutely has. I mean, to your point, three years ago, Kevin Warren was the outlier in that he came into the position without not only no college conference experience, but no college experience at all. And now he's like the old man or, or, or much closer to that. He's the, he's the vet among Power Five uh, commissioners because of the people that have succeeded him at the uh, Pac-12 and, uh, and the Big 12. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think the job has changed uh, dramatically. And I think in some ways, people who have the job are now trying to figure out what are we supposed to be, especially Greg Sankey and and uh, Warren, Kevin Warren, because all of a sudden you see the decline of the NCAA. No longer is the NCAA president, you know, at the at the high end of the totem pole, arguably the high end of the totem pole is the is the SEC and the Big Ten commissioner. And it's a much more public facing job. It's different skills. It's no longer really about being well connected and, and knowing how to move the gears of college athletics because the gears of college athletics have themselves become so revolutionized in the last few years that having institutional knowledge dating back decades is in some ways obsolete um, or at least perceived to be obsolete. So, yeah, I think they're, they're, they're definitely trying to figure out what does it mean to be a college conference commissioner in this new era of college athletics? And I think, you know, you, you see sort of as well, especially at the at the very pinnacle, Kevin Warren juxtaposed Greg Sankey. They're trying to distinguish themselves. They're trying to distinguish their conferences. Um, you see Kevin Warren having a huge emphasis on the on the holistic athlete experience and racial awareness um, social issues. I mean, trying to really turn this into a kind of um, a political job uh, in a certain way. Um, and then you see Greg Sankey, um, who you know obviously is 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 manning the the uh, the SEC and is not quite doing the same things that Kevin Warren has more institutional experience, arguably has more valuable properties still. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're trying to sort of figure out what this means because, and this was the knock on Kevin Warren early on, the job for the longest period of time was get money and pass it along to the schools. The, the organizations, the college conferences were not supposed to be autonomous entities. The conference commissioners were not supposed to have such a public face. Um, that has changed. And now they're trying to figure out, okay, so what are we supposed to be and, and where can we exactly take this? Eben, you get the sense that I could bring in my Simpsons analogy here, that college sports <laughs> wants to be the mom and pop hardware, but then there's that plaque on the door as you walk in that says a division of Global Dynamics, Inc. Like they, they want the mom and pop hardware feel, but the reality is it's a division of Global Dynamics, Inc. And when you're talking about institutional knowledge five, 10 years ago, two, three, whatever, I think we're looking forward to institutional capital. This is, this is going to be about uh, definitely ringing cash registers 
and figuring out how to pass that money down down the line. Daniel, do you do you feel like the 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 powers that be in college sports are are more open about this publicly now? One of the things Kevin Warren said earlier this week in his kind of state of the league press conference that, that he doesn't want to be Sears and Roebuck, which I thought was kind of a nice little encapsulation of probably into his brain about how he sees the dangers of not adapting to these times that you're talking about. It does feel to me that athletic directors university presidents, certainly conference commissioners now seem to be openly talking about a lot of the things that they were very much fighting against behind the scenes or, or just never wanted to discuss publicly before. Or at least they, what they were trying to do was obfuscate. I mean, yes, the, this, this patina of this being about the kids, this patina about, about the, of this whole thing being about higher education, I think is beginning to fade away just because it, it sounds particularly ridiculous in light of all the money that's being discussed. It's interesting. I mean, I, I would say the proximate cause of the shift in rhetoric is NIL, um, whether or not that Agreed. should or should not have been. It seems like about a year ago, we noticed a lot less of this kind of conventional college sports rhetoric uh, as, it, as it regards the, the money in college athletics. And yes, I mean, you know, there's still a little bit of it, even Kevin Warren made a big deal to me in, in our first interview about how he, uh, instead of flying private uh, air, private jets to various locations, especially around the Midwest, as he might have done when he was an executive with the Minnesota Vikings, he takes this kind of conversion van. He rents these and leases these conversion vans to drive him around places. So there's still a little bit of this pressure to seem like, oh, you know, even though we're talking about billions of dollars, and even though Kevin Warren, at least in the fiscal year 2020, made $3.5 million in compensation, we're going to still try to play this up a little bit. But yeah, I mean, now everyone wants to hear uh, large dollar figures, and it seems like there's less of a, of a need to sort of project uh, you know, this, this mom-and-pop vision of, of college athletics. Well, I mean, there's no better training ground for college sports than the NFL, right? I mean, <laughs> we get, it's not too far. And let's not forget that Kevin represented the Will family in its purchase of the Minnesota Vikings. Then he went to go work uh, for the Vikings. And, and I say that with, you know, tongue, I wouldn't say firmly planted in cheek. Obviously, the NFL is, is the behemoth. I get it. But just as a little bit of a chuckle, because it, it's more of a joke of how big and how much of a cash cow college sports has become that one can even joke about the fact that working the NFL is a training ground for, for college sports. But that's where, uh, the, like you said, the patina, the veneer of the student athlete. We, we keep hearing much all these schools from the West Coast going to the Big Ten. What about the Tuesday night travel? What, these are the things that, that critics would say, that it is no longer a, a student athlete experience focused. This is a 100% professional venture Whereas, and we'll decide, we'll probably be told or find out in the next five years whether or not college athletes are indeed employees. Daniel, I know you need to go, so let's we'll let you out on this on this question. Um, I say we keep them. Let's inconvenience them. Let's just keep them. <laughs> if, if we look ahead forward, I, I kind of think of the Big Ten and the SEC as the future AFC and NFC, two dominant halves of a big enterprise. They overlap geographically a little bit, and 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 everything else is below that. Do you see that the same way? How much do you think the the distancing that that Kevin and the Big Ten and then on the other side, Greg and the SEC are doing right now, play that forward? What do you think that looks like in a few years? 
Yeah, I think that's exactly the analogy. And it, and again, to, to tie back to what Scott was just saying, this is the difference when the people that everyone are is focused on, what they say are the conference commissioners and not the NCAA president. This is the difference in the sort of rhetoric that they're that they're likely to give because they really are much more openly focused on on uh, on revenue, um, or at least they're more openly uh, talkative about revenue. But yeah, I mean that that seems to be the uh, the the way things are trending. Two power conferences, likely those conferences will be compensating athletes. Um, I I I keep thinking, you know, if if we if we assume it's going to happen in five years, the trend is now saying it's going to happen sooner. Everything just seems to be rolling along quicker than uh, than what is initially suspected. Um, but yeah, that's you know, and then it's the question of how valuable is this? How valuable of an asset is this in that context? Without the rest of college athletics, without the the real feeling that this is you know, intimately tied into these universities. This has been the argument made by the NCAA in these antitrust cases, is that without the, the, the notion of amateurism, without this kind of historic vision of what college sports has been, these things don't sell to the public in the way that they would. So, you know, we're going to run this experiment more or less pretty soon, I think, with just looking at these power football conferences and, and what the public's interest is. Will people be tuning into the games in the same way? And will Foxes and ESPNs and, and whatever other kind of distribution partners in the future find the same sort of value in the product as they, as they currently do and as they're likely to do when they sign this uh, Big Ten deal? All right, Daniel, it's probably a good time to remind all our listeners that you can check out the uh, Sportico NCI Finance Database. If you want to know exactly where each school stands, uh, you can get down the rabbit hole on that one, comparing schools to each other. But great stuff there. Great stuff on the story. Thanks so much, man. We uh, appreciate you joining us. Thanks, guys. All right, Novi Williams. Uh, I mean, took about a half an hour to get through the story, but totally worthwhile. Learned a, a ton of stuff and really got a great inside look at some of the, the turmoil and strife going on inside the Big Ten. Everybody's so focused on USC and UCLA and the impending media deal. And boy, it's all rosy, right? Well, Kevin Warren certainly had enough to deal with. I think that's exactly right. Yeah, it's easy to focus on the, the big public things and be like, oh, wow, the Big Ten is killing it. Everything's great. They're making a ton of money. Uh, and while some of those things may be true, uh, it's always more complicated the more people you talk to behind the scenes about what's really going on in addition to those kind of big, flashy, kind of big ticket items. All right. A couple. Speaking of big ticket items, I had my segue all set, and then right there at the end, you said big ticket item. I'm like, wait a minute. Now I got to. You know, my brain instantly switched into a different gear. How about the Cincinnati Open as a big ticket item? Uh, you and I reported that Ben Navarro is the proud owner now of the uh, tennis tournament in the Cincinnati Open. Uh, almost three hundred million dollars plus a promise to uh, pour some more cash into infrastructure improvements and. Others involved, like Redbird Capital was there. Mark Walter was there. Um, Platinum Equity was there. Tom Gores was involved. Roger Federer and Tony Gotsik, his agent, were were there. Billie Jean King was involved. Mark Ein. A lot of people wanted it. I know it got to a certain level where some of those people said, "Eh, it doesn't make any sense. But obviously, Ben Navarro feels differently. Why don't you tell me about some of the numbers that you think, you know, back of napkin, make this pencil out? 
Yeah, it's pretty wild. So so this is a transaction. This is the, the Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati, as you mentioned. It's one of the few top level, so so thousand, uh, one thousand level as as tennis calls them, top level uh, tour stops where it's both men's and women's. So it's both the ATP tour and the WTA tour events happening simultaneously in the same venue. And that's fairly rare. It doesn't happen all that often. This is one of the few that do that. But you mentioned the top line number there, Scott, 300 around a little bit less than 300 million plus maybe some other considerations in there. The USTA bought the ATP sanction here uh, combined. They spent about $17 million over the past two decades to, to buy up 94% uh, of this event. And now they're selling it for dramatically Good more than that. Yeah, not a bad re- return. I'm sure there's a bit more a bit more complex than that. But but this is the reason why the USTA uh, bought this up in the first place. And really, the reason why they're selling it is that these properties are uh, expensive right now. The, I believe the the thousand level event in Madrid recently sold for four hundred million dollars to IMG. There is uh, there is a lot of interest out there. And and for Ben Navarro. Scott, he owns a, a WTA event in Charleston. I believe that's called the Charleston Open. Now he has a WTA and ATP event uh, in a different part of the country. In Cincinnati, you can certainly imagine there are some synergies there. Yeah, but on the whole, uh, someone who has other aspirations for uh, maybe sports in his portfolio, and we can talk about the Panthers as well, but a lot of money being shelled out, but, but, but clearly there's value in some of these local tennis tournaments, especially the ones at the top level. Well, you would think there would have to be synergies. Like you have to have this as part of, of a portfolio. I, I don't know how you would pencil this back of napkin, how you would make this work if it was a standalone event and you had nothing else than a sports portfolio and you just had bought a tennis tournament for 300 million bucks. I don't, yeah, I mean, I don't know can, how that would work. So, so the event last year um, made $35.7 million in operating revenue. Operating expenses were, were 28.6. So, that's a $7 million profit, which seems like in a, in a normal year. So on revenue, he's spending a little bit under 10x revenue for the valuation. The other thing here, all the 1,000 level tournaments, ATP tournaments, have an equity share in ATP media, which pays out dividends uh, and is also doing $100 plus million a year in revenue. So there is not just the economics of, of holding these tournaments themselves, but also the, the equity piece in ATP media that comes along. Uh, with this sanction and owning this tournament. So there's a bit more economics in there for sure. Uh, But yes, I mean, I I agree with you. I imagine the more of these things that Ben Navarro owns and who knows if he's interested in, in buying up more tennis tournaments, but, but the more kind of economic uh, synergies that come along as well. I'm going to take people on a kind of a history ride here. When I was younger, there was a tournament, a U.S. open tune-up called the Hamlet challenge cup. You of course are too young to remember it. There was a place you know, one of these, you know, communities, private communities on Long Island called the Hamlet. And I always wonder, like, how did this tournament get, you know, and, and all the top players would go because it was right there in New York, you know, a week or whatever before the Open. I remember I sat behind Vitas Garolitis one time and I was just always fascinated. But like, wait, what, what are like Agassi and Sampras and whoever else it was? You know, McEnroe back then? I don't remember exactly. I was a young kid. But I was always fascinated by like, how does this work? What are these guys doing here playing at this at this sort of community just off the Long Island Expressway and they're getting ready for the U.S. Open. But clearly, even back, even back then, you know, good, good cash to be made. Uh, if you had the right tournament, the right players would show up. And, and these are gr- great events for, for young kids, especially those that like tennis. You can see in a lot of these 
some of the best players in the world play in, in this in this Western and Southern Open. You can see them up very close. There's a lot of interaction opportunities. There's a lot of autograph opportunities. I, I get the sense that these top-tier tennis events in, in, in cities like Cincinnati or in Charleston end up being just really good events for families, for young kids, for people who love tennis, just because of the proximity that you can get as you're mentioning there with, with the Hamlet event, the proximity you can get to some of the best players in the world. All right. Can we do some speculation and a little segue from you say best players in the world? Let's talk about the best female soccer players in the world, right? First of all, we got big time tournaments going up. Um, you got the Euro going on the, the, on the women's side, uh, sell out crowds in some of the biggest stadiums, you know, Wembley included. So recently we Home have like 90,000 plus there. the Barcelona women's team, right? They keep posting about their record crowds. They're drawing 90,000 plus, whatever it is. So let's just have some fun and speculate. There's an open slot in the NWSL, right? After David Blitzer, you know, pretty much gets his team and, and fills it in. There's an open slot. We know Michelle Kang spent $35 million outbid Todd Bowley for the Washington Spirit. I mean, some of the other owners like the Wilfs, Ted Siegel, uh, the Longs in KC. By the way, do you know tangentially, you know, how that um, applies to you, you know, about the longs. I know they're, and, they're Princetonians. Yeah. Pr- yeah. Yeah. You know, well, you time. know, the name of their private equity fund is Palmer square. Oh, I didn't know that, but I like, yeah, it. they don't, yeah. they don't know that I've tipped a few at Winberries, but I can't wait to see her at our invest in sports <laughs> you, event in October to let her know that I've been to Winberries a few times. So, you know, Ron Burkle, San Diego, um, Blitzer, like we mentioned, but in, uh, in Utah. So they're looking for like one more team and there's many cities, uh, you, you can name like you want to name some cities like where you think San Fran, Tampa, Toronto, Vegas, Denver, Cincy, Boston. I mean, Austin, Austin, Miami. Yeah, there's 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 a ton. Yeah, there's a so bunch of big it, so out let there. me ask you who who in the world uh, if we had competition between Michelle Kang and Todd Bowley, right? And if you believe sort of the metrics that you're hearing from our friends at Sports Innovation Lab on investment in women's sports and the ROI. You think the number's going up. Who wants in? Who can help the league? What makes sense? Because you and I, you know, you and I pay a lot of attention to what's going on in Angel City. It's sort of this Alexis Ohanian and, and this this uh, star power group of owners that 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 has a flywheel. It's not just about the soccer, and it's really this big flywheel where everything feeds into it. Um, what's the potential? What, what what do you see is who might be interested and and what sort of the, what sort of look do you think the auction's going to have? Yeah. So, so first of all, I mean, you're you're absolutely right that when Michelle Kang, the the valuation on on the, the spirit when she consolidated her ownership last year, thirty five million dollars, dramatically reset the price for whatever this was going to cost. And Bully was and short- at twenty, right? Wasn't Bully like twenty million? And Bully was at twenty or, or twenty five, which would have been yeah. a record for an NWSL team already. And then she came over the top by by another ten million dollars right after that. Kevin Durant invested in the in in, in the team here in, in New York and New Jersey. Um, from what I understand, the valuation was around thirty five million. May have even been a little bit higher, uh, from what I've been told. But yes, I think that between Kevin Durant's investment and certainly uh, what we're talking about with 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 Michelle Kang, suddenly the 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 floor for uh, for, for expansion fee or whatever it costs to buy into NWSL just got a whole lot higher. David Blitzer's in a kind of a different camp because he has the right to buy a team from buying. Uh, buying up RSL that, that that may come in at a different price. And the thing I'm fascinated here, Scott, and you got at it, very often, whenever any league expands, they're looking at specific cities. They're also interested in who the potential owner might be. 
I would think for NWSL, this process is going to lean a little bit more heavy on who the potential owners could be. If you can get a, a very prominent celebrity, a female celebrity or group of celebrities in, in Miami that, that can own a team, and you can certainly think of maybe some, so some prominent Miami residents who are there, yeah, that might be... That, that, that might be enough to tip the scale there. Or if you can get, um, if you can get Rob Walton and, and Melody Hobson and Condoleezza Rice in Denver uh, to be interested in an NWSL team in, in addition to the Denver Broncos, which they just bought, yeah, Denver's going to look a lot better. I do think it's, and, and you can, they can go big game hunting. You, you can think about whatever celebrities. The thing that Angel City has done so well is it is a star-studded ownership group of very famous women across a whole different set of disciplines and they have built-in marketing uh, that has been really effective in, in the first year just because of who's invested. And I think if I'm NWSL, that's a model. Part of that model is something that I want to replicate, which is let's get some of the most famous women, some of the most famous investors in the country to be backing this. And when that happens, you get a lot of buzz just by virtue of who they are. I think the the Angel City folks really understand Buzz. I mean, how great is it when you can be on Twitter or whatever, pick your platform, and there's Jennifer Garner in her shirt, her t-shirt that says, like, soccer mom, and she's literally bringing out orange wedges, right? Like, that's going to get attention. They understand the Hollywood nature, the entertainment aspect of it 360. It's not just about when they're playing on the field. And they get a lot of attention for it. So, you know, kudos to them. But you and I will be following the process. I'm very curious to see what the who and the how much, right? Mm-hmm. The who and the how much is what I want to see. All right. Anyway, he is. I'm going to take the close. All right. We're good. <laughs> yeah, go for you, it. You, you want to do it or you know, you're know, you feeling Call like you. it's your thing Call now? You. All right. I'll, he I'll is Evan Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on the Twitter at Soshnick. Our producer is Matt Whitehurst. Thank you very much, Matt. Our digital media editor is Cora Veltman. She loves it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which will very soon, or should I add a very, very soon? A very, very, Ooh. very Boy, who soon? Boy, wolf at this point, I think. <laughs> no, no, no. In Things are hap- We're in the works. Things are in the works. Very soon will become a part of the Sportico Media Network.